For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19, verse 10. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. That's a good verse to memorize, Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's a good reason to be encouraged when we are discouraged with our own sins and the lingering lostness we sometimes experience. It's of a piece with how our Anglican fathers in their wisdom put in our every Sunday liturgy that we hear the verse that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. To save the lost. It's a wonderful verse. It's a great distillation of the mission and the heart of the Messiah, our Savior Jesus Christ. It's also a little bit, to me, surprising to hear at the end of the story of Zacchaeus. At first glance, I think it's a bit hard to see how actually this has a relation to the story of Zacchaeus. When I look at the story, it looks like it's Zacchaeus seeking Jesus. Right? Not the other way around. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, but how is Zacchaeus saved? We don't hear a message of the gospel or the profession of faith uh, or the kingdom of God. There's just this sort of act once Jesus comes into his house. What has Zacchaeus been saved from? How is Jesus' own summary of this encounter that he's had with Zacchaeus as recorded in Luke 19.10, how is this an appropriate concluding word to an encounter with Zacchaeus. Do you, see, do you see the dilemma? Like The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, but here's Zacchaeus running around trying to get in Jesus' path and, and to seek out Jesus. That's uh, the thing I hope to answer together this morning, how this is a summary of Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus. Um, to do that, let me sort of boil down the Zacchaeus story into just a slight abstraction. So Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus takes several steps. The first is that he just wanted to see Jesus. And that then he, um, we see that in verse twice, actually, verse three and verse four. He wanted to see and he climbed the tree in order to see. And he went where he knew Jesus would be, right? He, he can't see Jesus through the crowd. Zacchaeus is sort of the most famous short person in history. Um, so he runs further down the footpath, to sort of preempting where Jesus is going to go so that Jesus runs into him. He went where Jesus would be, and then he did, in fact, see Jesus. He got what he came for. Right? He wanted to see who Jesus was. He saw Jesus. It says in verse 5, Jesus came to the place. But then, more than just seeing him, Jesus speaks directly to him. And I love that the Lord already knew his name, of course, because it was the same Lord who knit Zacchaeus together in his mother's womb. He knew Zacchaeus. He says, he speaks to him personally, Zacchaeus, come down. Zacchaeus responds to this invitation from the Lord, invites Jesus into his home, and then the final stage of the sequence, he does an act of repentance and restitution. Verse 8, behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anybody, I return it fourfold. When you kind of boil it down as an abstraction, I hope you already see that in many ways Zacchaeus... um, presents us with something of a model of how anyone gets saved by Jesus and how we, who call Jesus Savior already, um, come to live into that salvation more fully. How as Christians we can grow closer to our Savior. Um, So I want to walk through those steps. It begins with wanting to know. It actually begins with desire. 
wanting to know who Jesus is. Um, w- the funny thing about St. Paul, he's one of the very few converts who didn't want to know about Jesus, and Jesus stopped him in his tracks. But he's the exception, not the rule. Christian history bears out that those who end up coming to Christ are, wa- are almost always those who wanted to know something about Jesus, who had a little bit of desire, a little bit of curiosity to find out who this Jesus is. That curiosity in today's terms is usually manifest in either talking to a Christian or coming to church. Do you see the analogy? It's going to the place where you think Jesus might be. Zacchaeus saw Jesus walking down the road. To come to church is a chance to, well, I think I'll hear about Jesus there. I hope, I hope that you hear about Jesus there. And then um, seeing Jesus, as it were, looking down on him from the sycamore tree like Zacchaeus, I think has an analogy in just learning the doctrines of the Christian faith, to learn who Jesus is sort of at the level of like a fact book. Okay, he's the God-man. Okay, he died in this year. His apostles testified that he was, in fact, raised from the dead. Learning these facts about Jesus and seeing what he's like. That's why we have the reading of the word and the recitation of the passion in every communion liturgy, so that we could have a chance to see Jesus either for the first time or again. But then seeing Jesus and believing the doctrine, it's the only right start, but it's only, um, it's not enough in itself. What we want, of course, is actually to hear Jesus address us personally. That it's not just the word sent out vaguely, it's the word sent exactly to each of us. Zacchaeus, to be called by name. I love every time the Lord uses first names in the Gospels. This wonderful personal encounter and intimacy. Zacchaeus, come down. Right. I, I want to hear when I read the word, not just, oh, these things are true, but Ben, come down. Right. Lincoln, come down. I wasn't sure who to pick on. <laughs> to be invited by the living Jesus through his word personally. Um, all of these sort of stages, the sort of first half of the Zacchaeus story, the first half of our stories, um, could rightly be described as, as seeking God, right? Kind of us seeking God, and indeed Zacchaeus was seeking God, but what I want to offer you is that um, our seeking God is only half of the story. It's the visible part. The other half of the story is that invisibly, before all that, it was God seeking us, God seeking Zacchaeus. Where do you think Zacchaeus got the idea to be interested in this Jesus fellow? Right? It, it wasn't from Satan, I assure you. It wasn't from his own flesh. It was a prompting of the Spirit of God nudging Zacchaeus' heart. Aren't you a little bit interested in that guy? Don't you want to find out something? Right? The, the very prompt came from God the Spirit already seeking out Zacchaeus to sort of draw him in through invitation and inner nudgings to inquire in the first place who Jesus is. In this way, I hope to answer the first part of the question. Um, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus thought he was seeking Jesus, but all along Jesus was seeking Zacchaeus. God was seeking Zacchaeus, well before he climbed up into that sycamore tree. Um, God promises us that when we seek, we'll find. So Zacchaeus sought and he found. And the crucial piece, the linchpin, is in finding he responded. That when Jesus looked at him and said, I want to stay at your house today, Zacchaeus wasn't like, ah, I don't know, I'm kind of busy, we'll check the calendar. He said, okay, you bet. If today's the day, today is this, it says in Psalm 95, today if you hear 
his voice. Do not harden your hearts. I love that Jesus says, I must come to your house today. So Zacchaeus brought him into his house. Do you see the metaphor? Brought him into his house, into his life. I didn't keep Jesus out here. Invited him in to his private world. Um, If we would not just be sought by God, but be saved by him to seek and to save the lost, we need to respond. John 14.23, Jesus says, it's a promise, and my father and I will come and make our home with him. Right, that there's all these interlap of teaching and, and ministry of Jesus that we see him coming into the home of a man, that his goal is actually to take up residence in our lives. And one of the things that I would, when Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house, I would expect him to say it at this juncture, right? He's encountered Zacchaeus, Jesus invited him in this home, that he would kind of begin, that's when he would say, today salvation has come to this house, But in the account, that's actually not when Jesus says it. There's one more stage yet to be fulfilled. The final deciding piece, when the fruits of Jesus' transforming presence come forward. That's when Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. When the Son of Man has truly saved the lost. Um, I think the story of Zacchaeus kind of is this tantalizing story because I think so much happens between verse 6 and verse 8. Jesus comes into the house and then people grumble and then all of a sudden Zacchaeus is like, I give half my stuff away. Right? I mean, think about what you'd think of someone if they said they're giving away 50% of their wealth like that. You'd be like, whoa, what happened? Right? And the, the gospel account doesn't tell us. I wonder if um, it could be that Jesus spoke... Uh, a prophetic and pointed word like he does to the woman at the well where he you know he speaks right in to the life or maybe it was just the way I sort of picture it when I think of the Zacchaeus story um, we don't know but I picture it as um, just what Zacchaeus experienced when he looked into Jesus's face that it was heart speaking to heart that he knew that this man who knew his name this man knew him and he knew what was going on in here and in his heart he responded and he knew that God was offering release from sin, forgiveness in this Messiah that was before him and that he wanted in and that it was a movement of his heart, heart speaking to heart. Um, I lost where I was. <coughs> Um, I kind of got ahead of myself there. Well, I also wanted to point out um, how do we understand this deed that Zacchaeus does when he just stands up and gives away half his wealth? It's crucial that, that you know every detail in the Gospels is there with a reason. None of it is accidental. These are all the life-giving words of God to us. What's the one detail we learn about Zacchaeus as he's introduced in Luke's account? It says, he was a chief tax collector and was rich. So just kind of do a little bit of simple deduction. How do you become a chief tax collector, right? You become a very high revenue, you're a very high revenue tax collector, right? That the higher ups like, and they say, oh, you're a chief tax collector now. And if you're a tax collector, remember this is before the IRS and before tax brackets, um, which complain as we will about the IRS, it was worse then, I assure you. Um, What you paid in tax was what you negotiated with your tax collector and what kind of a man he was, right? So if you're a chief tax collector and you're rich, how did you get rich? Basically, right? Putting a really hard squeeze on all the people in your district. Exactly. Severity, greed, and miserliness. That money came 
No wonder everyone grumbled when Jesus went to his house, right? He'd been in the pockets of everybody in Jericho. Knowing this then, um, that Zacchaeus, his trade was a tax collector, that he'd become very rich, I think we can say with a high degree of probability, not for certain, but it's very probable, that we could guess that Zacchaeus' besetting sin, the thing he struggled with the most, was greed. Greed. It's the case that all sin binds us, it shackles us to a less than human existence, it's the thing that Jesus wants to set us free from, all sin is odious to God. Um, as we heard very plainly in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, all sin is the reason that we, apart from Christ, would be destined, to use the language of 2 Thessalonians 1, towards eternal punishment. So all sin fits that bill, but each of us often stumbles into particular sins according to the weaknesses uh, and the, of our own personality and our life story. And Zacchaeus' stumbling block was, I think, almost certainly greed. And so when Jesus comes into his house... And Zacchaeus, I think, looks into the face of Jesus. He becomes aware of his sinfulness in the face of the purity and the love of God. And so we know from how we know what God works, the Holy Spirit moves Zacchaeus to repent. To repent, to turn away from sin, to say, I don't want that anymore. And repentance is first an inward act, but it manifests itself, to use the words of John the Baptist, in fruits that are in keeping with repentance. And that's what his deed is. When he just gets up, it, it might seem like a non sequitur. It's the expression, the outward act of the inward transformation that says, I don't want my sin anymore. I don't want to be just living constantly greedy and falling into acts of greed as I extort my fellow man. I want whatever this man, the life that this man in front of me is presenting. That's repentance, turning away. And verse 8, when he stands up, and I, I just picture him blurting out, like with this sort of overflowing, Lord, I give half of it away right now, and if anybody's wronged me, I restore it fourfold, right? It's lavish. It's sort of exciting. He's demonstrating um, what's taken place in his heart. And that is what true repentance from the particular sin of greed would look like, right? To say, oh yes, Lord, I'm very sorry, my greed, and then just kind of still live on the bounty of all those millions of dollars that have been swiped, right, wouldn't be repentant. So part of repentance, if greed, and some of you, greed might be the temptation. I don't know. Right? That's between you and the Lord. But particular sins, what repentance looks like, um, takes a particular shape. We see that with Zacchaeus. He gets rid of what was acquired with sin. Right? That's part of turning away from it. It's not saying, well, I turn away, but, well, at least I'm only turning away now and I've got all this behind me, right? No. He says, no, I get rid of that. Clean this house out. It makes reparation to the wronged parties. Some sins are known to God alone and offend him alone. Some sins hurt our brothers and sisters. And part of repentance is trying to make that right. And some sins you can't make right. Greed is one you can. You can say, I stole from you, now I'm paying you back. Not all sins are that way. But if it's possible right, to make reparation to the wrong party. True repentance shows itself in a deed of the opposite virtue, right? So you can, if you think of the seven um, traditionally called deadly sins, the seven capital sins, each one has an opposite virtue, right? And so here, him who was Zacchaeus, who pursued greed for his life up until this point, part of his repentance is turning towards benevolence and charity. Right? He's doing the opposite of the thing he's done his whole life, right? Rather than grabbing for himself, he's wanting to distribute. 
a deed of the opposite virtue. So how did the Son of Man seek and save the lost? The Son of Man saves Zacchaeus by leading him away from his life of deeds of darkness and into the way of life, into a life that is responding to Christ and imitating Christ. With Christ-inspired deeds of faith, I keep harping on this, this truth that this, it's the Spirit that proceeds and it's Christ that inspires, um, because that's such a crucial point. One of the great mistakes we've seen in Christian history is thinking that if I do these specific deeds, well, I'm, I've now I've earned my salvation. And so part of why the church is always careful to teach that any Christian deed is Spirit-inspired, Christ-inspired. It was Christ's gift first, right? Jesus, Zacchaeus didn't say, God, I give away everything. Now will you come to my house? Right? Jesus came to his house and he responded by giving away his stuff. That's a crucial piece. Um, and this idea of sort of a contrary, um, of an act of faith, an act of virtue that's contrary to a besetting sin. Are you familiar with that term, besetting sin? Is that familiar? No. So besetting sin, like I said, that's the, the thing that you're most inclined to fall into, right? according to your station and your, your personality. And most of us have one. There's one thing where it's like, I'm tempted by this most every day. Right? This is the thing that when I disbelieve God and I start living myself, this is the sin I fall into. That's a besetting sin. I want to look at this, uh, to kind of hold forth this image of Zacchaeus doing the opposite of his besetting sin in response to the goodness of God. And I want to talk about it because one of the things I'm convinced of is that what happens in our hearts um, and the deeds that we do, there's kind of a two-way relationship there. That sometimes we feel things and we, we act accordingly. Right? Like, like Zacchaeus, he, I think something happened in his heart and, and he did a deed. But we can also do deeds to shape our hearts. I was trying to think, like, what's an analogy for this? Um, I think one might be, sometimes I, I might want to take my wife, who's sitting in the pews for the first time in, like, two years. <laughs> Yay! Marvelous. Sometimes I might want to take my wife out on a date because I, my heart's just full of love and affection, and so the deed springs forth from what's in here. But it's also the case that in times with little kids, that to keep the discipline of a date night as a way of, well, no matter what I feel in the heart, we're going to go out to eat. And, and actually the discipline, it kind of reinforces and cultivates love and affection, right? So the deed actually can write inward. It kind of go, it's a two-way relationship between what's in the heart and, and the deeds that are affected. So if each um, capital vice has its opposite virtue, um, that's something we can think about how we can show our response to the Lord, not to earn favor, but just to double down in seriousness, to say, yeah, Lord, I, I don't repent from my greed and then keep all the wealth. I repent from it and I give it away. So um, I just want to walk through, actually, just to name the seven uh, deadly sins and what virtue opposes them. So greed, as we've seen in Zacchaeus, is opposed by charity and benevolence. Gluttony is opposed by temperance. I love that. I would have always thought that the opposite of gluttony was abstinence. The opposite of gluttony is temperance. Lust is opposed by purity. Sloth is opposed by diligence. Anger is opposed by patience. Envy is opposed by kindness. Pride, of course, is opposed by humility. So uh, as I name that list, I imagine at least one of those sort of sticks in your ears like, ah, don't name the one I struggle with, right? 
But think about what is that opposite virtue? What would be a Zacchaeus-like deed that you could do just to show the Lord your response to his mercy? Right? If you were in Zacchaeus' shoes, it would mean give, concretely giving away greed, wealth if, if greed was the sin. But think for a second. I will take 10 kind of awkward seconds for us to think about it. Think of yourself in Zacchaeus' shoes with Christ inside your house, looking around, I'm speaking metaphorically, at what your sins have acquired for you, and look into his face that shows chiefly pity. The face of Christ is chiefly showing us pity, mercy. Knowing that he's calling you to a godlier, saved life, just like Zacchaeus, what's something that you could do that would be the opposite of what you've done? What's something you could do that would be the opposite of what you've done? I'm thinking about it for myself. Just a um, sort of a couple sort of prompts for your imagination. If the sin has been gluttony, maybe it's something as small as well. I just won't have dessert today. Just a small act of temperance for. We don't deeds for the Lord don't have to be magnificent and impressive. Nobody else can even know about them. But some little act to say, well, I am sorry for choosing that. I, I, I want to do this act to show that I'm, that I really do repent of that. If the sin is something taken in through the eyes, to think, well, what's an act of purity? What's something pure that I could look at? Right? Maybe a, maybe a cross or an icon. What's something that I could look at that is pure to do an act that is the opposite of what I've done? Again, not that we're earning salvation, not that we're healing our own souls. Of course not. There's only one healer of souls, the Holy Spirit sent forth from Jesus Christ. But an act that shows forth, yeah, Lord, I'm serious about this. I don't want to keep Zacchaeus' wealth. I want to get rid of it. Um, an An act of opposite virtue. If the Holy Spirit has brought something to mind just now, do that thing this week. Just do it. Um, for his sake, just like happy Zacchaeus uh, standing up and, and blurting out yeah, his, his charity. Um, I know, I'm grateful, as, as, I sat in the back, as I stood in the back as you guys were gathering, um, my heart just swelled with seeing you guys, <laughs> that the faithful people of God working out their salvation with fear and trembling, and as each of you I know are, are doing that, working out your salvation. I know that each of you is already on the path of salvation. This isn't the case like Zacchaeus of, well, I once wasn't in and now I am. I now I wasn't once wasn't saved and now I am. You guys are being saved. And to do an act of a contrary virtue, it's just to lay claim with more more of our hands into that salvation, to let it sink in a bit more fully. It's a matter of degrees, not of black and white. So I encourage you to do that thing, that act of contrary virtue, and join happy Zacchaeus. Amen.